Hello and welcome to the January episode of the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica and I'm a professor of health management and policy here at the University of New Hampshire. Today's guest is Mary Lowry, the administrative director of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System's Center for Telehealth. The Center for Telehealth is Dartmouth-Hitchcock's consolidated telemedicine program, and in this podcast, we talk about the variety of services and support that Mary's team provides across New Hampshire and Vermont. It's a fascinating look at the future of medicine, even though, as Mary notes, telemedicine isn't new. I think telemedicine is now just coming of age, and as we continue to transition away from a fee-for-service model in healthcare and towards the provision of value-based care, we are only going to see greater levels of telemedicine utilization. I want to say a quick thank you to the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives for their continuing support of the Health Leader Forge. Also, if you find these podcasts helpful, would you please leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you are downloading this recording from? It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening, and here is Mary Lowry. Welcome to the Forge, Mary. Thanks very much, Mark. I really appreciate you being with us today. This is kind of a special episode of the Health Leader Forge, and that's because I'm preparing to participate in teaching a class in telemedicine and telehealth here at uh, the University of New Hampshire, along with a group of colleagues from across my College of Health and Human Services. And so I've asked Mary to join us today to talk a little bit about the business side of telemedicine and telehealth, and in particular, as a representative of the largest hospital and the only teaching hospital in the state of New Hampshire. So, Mary, you are the administrative director for the Connected Care Center at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. For folks listening who might not be familiar with the geography of northern New England, where is Dartmouth-Hitchcock located? And can you briefly also describe Dartmouth-Hitchcock as an organization? Sure. So Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, our main campus, as we refer to it, is located in Lebanon, New Hampshire, which is in the Upper Valley, a region that spans New Hampshire and Vermont. So we are about an hour north of Concord and directly over the border of Vermont from White River Junction. Um, and so Dartmouth-Hitchcock as an organization is a nonprofit academic health system, and our goal is to serve patients in the northern New England community. So we have more than 1,000 primary care doctors and specialists in almost every area of medicine. And we also are comprised of a couple of centers, which include the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. That's one of 45 comprehensive cancer centers across the nation and the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth. I think people all know that as CHAD. We have four affiliate hospitals, 24 ambulatory clinics across New England, uh, across New Hampshire and Vermont, I'm sorry. And uh, we are also affiliated recently with the Visiting Nurse and Hospice for Vermont and New Hampshire. Yeah, it's a it's a big organization that does a lot of amazing yeah. stuff. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your background and kind of how did you come to work at Dartmouth Hitchcock? How long have you been there? And then more specifically, how did you come to be working in the Connected Care Center? Sure. Uh, I had no previous experience in healthcare when I came to work here at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center in 1995. I came as the administrative supervisor in the Department of Anesthesiology. And over the course of my time there, I obtained an MBA and I was promoted to practice manager position and then eventually to the administrative director position in that department. And I worked in anesthesiology for about 21 years. So I've only been transferred over here to the Connected Care Center since May 2016. Okay. And 
the timing was it was good timing because there were some uh, leadership transitions. The chair of the anesthesiology department with whom I had worked was leaving his position. And so I it was just kind of an opportunity to make some change. And I had had some previous experience uh, help, kind of helping out in an administrative role when the telehealth services were first getting started. Uh, there was a gap there. So I, I had an exposure to telehealth services that interested me in following up. Great. Well, so you're not a clinician. No. Okay. So what is your role in the department? And for you know, people not familiar with this idea of an administrative director, what do you do? So I kind of have a broad range of responsibilities overseeing finances and operations. So it's a mixed bag. It's a typical structure here in a clinical department at Dartmouth-Hitchcock where you have a, a physician medical uh, direct person uh, partnered with an administrative director. So that's our structure here as well. Okay. So let's talk about the department then. What What is Connected Care? So connect, the Connected Care Center is actually a space. Uh, it's a very lovely space in the new Williamson building at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, which we inhabit along with the hospital's transfer center and the transport team for the DART helicopter. So there are some nice synergies because some of the services that we're engaged in for telemedicine interacts with both of those areas to help get patients where they need to be after a telemedicine consult, for example. Uh, So my area, the connected care department, is a a collection or a suite of telemedicine services. Okay. So let's talk about that synergy for a second. So you're saying you do do telemedicine very often. It's in a consultative kind of role where where you're maybe making a recommendation to... um, to a, a treating physician at another location that, hey, this person should be transferred perhaps to Dartmouth uh, to get a higher level of care. Is that, is that what you're saying? Exactly. So we are in our actual space, we have a tele-emergency hub. That's what we call the space where the physicians and nurses are providing the clinical care from our side. And it's right nearby to the transfer center. So our tele-emergency team may be talking to a hospital and determining that that patient should be transferred here or even to another location. It's very easy for our team to work with the transfer center just across the across the other side of the room to coordinate that patient transfer. Okay. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the history of the department. How, do, how long has Connected Care existed and kind of how long has Dartmouth-Hitchcock been doing telemedicine? It was our telehealth organization was officially founded in 2012, and we started with some telemedicine services in the telespecialty space, outpatient appointments, and telestroke in 2013. Although I was recently told that through Dartmouth College, we had physicians who were doing telemedicine services back in the 70s. So that predates me, and I I don't have any more information about that beyond it was happening then. Yeah, Uh, okay. We officially have been doing these services, uh, you know, face-to-face, two-way video telemedicine services since about 2013. Yeah, I can't imagine telemedicine in the 70s looks looks anything like what, or looked anything like what it does today. Right. Um, Yeah, we just didn't have the literal bandwidth to do that kind of of work, right? For our previous conversation, so we've talked before and, and we talked a little bit about the organization, but you said that Connected Care really kind of evolved out of your telestroke program. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that correct? 
So yes. what is Telestroke and and let's let's start with tell you know with, let's start with that service. Um, what is Telestroke and and to whom does Dartmouth Hitchcock provide these services? So currently, our telestroke service has migrated to a broader teleneurology service. Some uh, other organizations only have telestroke. We have a broader teleneurology service. And this is for uh, typically a patient would present to a local emergency room and they would be exhibiting symptoms of stroke. And the hospital then would engage with us to have a consultation by a neurologist. And it's really important for stroke patients to have appropriate treatment within a very short timeline to preserve their quality of life. So if they're going to have a treatment, it's meant to be administered within a very small window of time. So we have protocols whereby there is a physician on video with the patient within 30 minutes at the most from the time that the request is made. And the Dartmouth-Hitchcock physician, or the neurologist, I mean, we have board-certified neurologists who are providing the service, and they would do an assessment and provide some uh, treatment recommendations for the patient. This is in collaboration with hospital bedside staff. There's always a physician on the other side who is actually then executing what is meant to happen for that patient. So our physician might say, uh, yes, this patient is having a stroke and it was it meets all of the parameters for delivery of TPA, which is the treatment for stroke. And that the physician on that side then would execute those orders. Okay. So we might have what, maybe a, a primary care physician or a um, emergency room physician, perhaps at, at, at a at a small hospital or a small emergency room someplace in the North Country, and they would they would connect in with your your provider and 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 they would communicate and and the provider at Dartmouth would would then make the kind of the diag- or help make the diagnosis. Exactly, that's exactly right. It's so it's usually an emergency room doctor or it might be a hospitalist. Okay, so you on your end have what you said were board certified physicians with a specialty in treating stroke. So why, why, uh, why are hospitals contracting with you to get this kind of service? Why, why would, I don't know, I'm trying to think, I don't remember which hospitals you have, but maybe give an example of one and, you know, why would they uh, want to contract with you? Sure. So, uh, I mean, Cheshire Hospital is one of our affiliates, and, but, okay. and so we're providing the service there, but we're also providing the service at, uh, for example, um, I'm blanking on. I'm going to say uh, Weeks Hospital. Okay. okay. So we're we're not live there now, but we're talking with them about it. So one of the reasons is that you you know again it, because uh, the time is so critical for treating these patients. If a patient shows up at Weeks Hospital, even if they get in a helicopter to come here, they may not get here in time for the appropriate treatment. So that's one thing. It's it's really the ability to take care of those patients. The early intervention is going to ensure the best patient outcome. Yeah. For Weeks Hospital, for them to have a neurologist on call 24-7 would be quite an expensive proposition. You don't know when these patients are going to show up. It's it's an unpredictable occurrence. So to to pay someone to be available only when you need them is very expensive. This way, yeah. they only pay for the service when they need it. So Weeks Hospital is a what's known as a critical access hospital, I believe. Is that yes. correct? So yep. what does that mean? So a critical access hospital has fewer than 25 beds, and uh, I am not an expert on critical access hospitals, but I do, the the main, the, the main thing we think about when we talk about doing business with critical access hospitals is that they have special reimbursement rules. Yeah. So they're 
so they have they are allowed to bill Medicare in certain ways different from we are they don't bill really fee for service and there are certain requirements they have restrictions on how long they can keep patients in their beds right. so there's they're just a set of operating rules that apply only to critical access hospitals and not larger hospitals I mean the thing that I think of and I think that's relevant to the to this service is you know if, if a hospital is a critical access hospital by definition it's small it's yes. like you said 25 beds it tends to be you know they tend to be rural they tend to be you know far from another organization you know from a larger another hospital or a larger organization uh, by by law so I think the benefit of being able to tap into something like telemedicine then would be like you said with a 25 bed hospital you're never going to be able to keep a, a neurologist busy right for right. you know a, to have a meaningful a meaningful practice so right. So, so Cheshire is a larger hospital. It's a PPS hospital. We also have teleneurology at uh, SBMC in Bennington, Vermont. And, um, but one of, so, you know, but who knows, maybe they could, it would still be expensive, but they could potentially support 24-7 neurology support. These hospitals typically have neurology in the daytime, yeah. but it's, it's hard really to make the financial case. And the other thing is that a lot of the, uh, but, but they also want to keep as many of their patients local as they can. Okay. And it, in looking at our teleneurology service over the last year and a half, um, the majority of the patients who are seen are actually are not stroke patients. So we have a situation when we first went live at um, Bennington, we had some great just kind of anecdotal data from them out of the box that they had some patients, they had two patients on one day who came in that prior to having the teleneurology service would have automatically just been transferred to Bennington. Neither one of those patients was having a stroke. Both of those patients ended up able to be discharged to home that day. So the impact for those patients, for their family, for that hospital, and also understanding when uh, we have, oh, this, this patient is not having a stroke, it's something else. You don't have to then ship that patient to another hospital where they have a stroke unit for the patient to be monitored. So we found uh, that it's fewer than half of the patients are actually uh, having a stroke and the majority of patients are able to stay at the local hospital rather than being transferred. I mean, that's an interesting benefit to this, to this whole program is it does in fact allow you to, rather than sending somebody to say, you know, shipping somebody to Dartmouth, that's an exciting benefit to, to having telemedicine is, you know, if you're trying to rule out stroke, you don't have to now ship somebody off uh, to a place where there is uh, 24-7 coverage by a neurologist. You can get that neurologist online, rule out stroke without actually shipping the person off. And, and that both reduces the burden on the, on the individual. It reduces the burden on the system as well. Right. I think another interesting point you just raised about like using the example of Cheshire, which is a is a fairly decent sized community hospital, mm -hmm. uh, 150 beds or so. Yes. So it's it's not it's not it is not a critical access hospital. It's a it's right. a it's a, a decent sized community hospital that probably does in fact have staff neurology. I'm I'm assuming, mm -hmm. but your point was, you know, in order to provide 24/7 coverage, now you're burdening that 
individual or, or it, let's say you have just two neurologists. I mean, you're not going to have right. you're not going to have ten neurologists at a place like Cheshire, you know. Right. So that burden, you know, no one wants to be on call every other night. Right. Yeah. Right. So I mean, that was my experience with telemedicine back when I was a chief financial officer for the you know for a small army hospital was we were doing uh, radiology and we were down to two radiologists and they were having to pull call every other night and we that's when that was what motivated us to go to telemedicine coverage so i think that's an interesting point to kind of keep in mind as well mm-hmm. uh, a point you made a second ago is is your telestroke has now evolved to broader uh teleneurology services kind of can you give an example of what those uh kinds of services are that are offered beyond kind of stroke rule out and stroke treatment yeah, it's really about the diagnoses. So it is still um, mostly an acute, it's an acute service. It's for inpatients. Most of the time they're in the emergency room, they may be in the ICU or they may be on an inpatient unit and de- demonstrating symptoms of stroke. But some of the other um, diagnoses include encephalopathy, just altered mental status. Patient comes in off you know, the street into an emergency room and they don't really know what's what's going on. Their status epileptic epilepticus patients, seizure patients. So it's kind of a broad range of neurological, acute neurological conditions that need to be treated relatively quickly. Okay. What's the technology involved with the provision of these services? And I'm, I'm kind of assuming it's similar for the other services as well. So maybe we could talk about that. Yeah, we have a we have two different models, and one is a cart-based model. Teleneurology is a cart-based model. So there is a cart, and you know it's probably about uh, five and a half, six feet tall, where with a big monitor and a camera, and we have peripheral devices that can attach to it, so that there is there may be a stethoscope that is being used from the cart on the patient side, but the doctor on our side can hear as if he or she is listening directly to that stethoscope. So it's a two. There's two-way video via the camera. The doctor can uh, can remotely move the camera to zoom in and zoom out and see the things that he or she needs to see. For uh, teleneurology, they often need to look at the patient's eyes pretty closely. So uh, the fidelity has to be very good, uh, and, and it is. So it's it's a relatively robust structure. On the physician side, it's just a computer. It could be a a cell phone, it could be a tablet. I think for neurology, they're looking at films, typically x-ray images also. So they want to have a big screen. They're typically getting on their laptop computer and they have a second monitor. And this, when you say on the physician side, you're, you mean uh, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock? Yes, the, the telemedicine physician. Okay. And the telemedicine physician is, is typically sitting physically in your connected care area when he or she is, is pulling Not this. for neurology, no. Okay. So uh, they are uh, sitting, they might be in an office in the neurology department or at home. So the Dartmouth, we actually work in partnership. We do not have enough business or scale at this time to cover the service 24-7 with Dartmouth-Hitchcock neurologists. So we're partnered with an organization called Specialist on Call, which is the largest national provider of tele-neurology services in the country. And they... um, so they cover the days mostly, and we have Dartmouth Hitchcock neurologists covering the majority of night shifts and weekends. So the those neurologists at night will be home in bed, and they will, you know, get the call and, and get up and go over to their computer to do the video consult. And they don't have to physically leave their their house, um, right? And and so that's interesting. So um, 
So that we ask them to be presentable, you know, not to show up on video in their pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> throw on a throw on a, at least throw on a shirt and a jacket real quick. Yeah. There you, go. <laughs> you might be sitting there in your underwear, but you know, at least the upper half looks good, right? That's right. <laughs> okay, um, and that makes pulling call a lot easier too. I assume. Right. I mean, you don't have to be physically in the hospital to do it. Right. Um, okay. Neat. Um, so let's see. Talk about uh, compensation for uh, for the service. So normally a physician would charge a professional fee for providing this consult, and then you know the and, and then presumably I mean if if the patient was being seen at Dartmouth, you'd have a facility fee. You'd have a you'd have a. How does this all? What does this look like in terms of? Revenue collected um, mm-hmm. and billing uh, from right. the patient's perspective and then from the organization, the participating organization's perspectives. Currently, for this service, there is no billing for any telemedicine fees. So there's no telemedicine professional bill for the neurologist. There's no technical bill for the telemedicine service. And the main reason for that is because of our partnership that we have with Specialist on Call. It's, uh, you know, their doctors are located all over the country. They are, it would be kind of a logistical nightmare to try to maintain credentialing a payer credentialing in a bunch of different states for those people. So it, that's just the way it's done. So uh, the from the hospital's perspective, there is a cost to them. They are paying Dartmouth-Hitchcock Teleneurology a per consult fee. And um, they are also able, though, from a professional billing perspective, to bill the payer whatever is happening locally at the bedside. So if the patient is having a stroke and the um, recommendation is to administer TPA, there's a charge for that, that the hospital would collect, would bill and collect. If there is a hospitalist, you know, rounding on that patient and taking care of that patient, they would have those professional fees and they would have all of their usual um, technical fees associated with having a patient in a bed. Okay. But, but the patient wouldn't, receive a bill for the neurologist. Correct. So what what is the interest and we we've, we've talked about this but but what's the business case that you make uh, as an organization as Dart what is the business case that Dartmouth makes as a um, you know to say a, a week's hospital or mm-hmm. uh, some other facility say hey you should you should pay us even though you're not going to be able to then you right. know, flow this bill through to your patient. Yeah. I mean, it really is for them, the ability to keep patients. It's, you know, aside from it, it's, this is one of the things that's toughest for us is really to be able to provide a super robust financial return on investment, because a lot of the things are in the, you know, soft green dollar kind of areas. It's about doing the right things for the patients and keeping them closer to home. But with teleneurology, there is an opportunity to keep the patient there locally, especially when we understand that the majority of the patients are not stroke patients who need to be cared for somewhere else or need to have stroke unit review or need to be in an ICU. Uh, so, th- so that really is the financial case. And you need to provide the service. You, it, this is a lot more economical for you to pay for five consults a month than to pay for 24-7 neurologist staffing. Okay. Because a hospital, say Cheshire or, you know, uh, which was which was our example of kind of a fairly robust community hospital or mm-hmm. – a critical, a very small critical access hospital. In order to have, you would still have to compensate your uh, neurologist, even if they weren't to to take call, even if they weren't uh, actually seeing patients. Right. Okay. 
So, so there is a cost incurred by the organization regardless. Uh, yeah. So this is an alternative method. Just to talk, to kind of wrap up the discussion around stroke. So let's say somebody is in fact having a stroke and they're at a critical access hospital like Weeks. You consult in, you say, yep, that person is in fact having a stroke. You, your neurologist says, administer TPA, do these other things. Um, you know, here's the, here's the, the, the treatments. Then what happens to the patient? Yeah. So they don't have an ICU or they don't really have the uh, internal resources to care for that patient. So that patient's typically going to be transferred. Okay. And would they likely be transferred to Dartmouth given the um, relationship or is that? Yeah, probably. I'm assuming that we have capacity and ability to take that patient. Okay. All right. So in addition to teleneurology, you offer four other 24-7 inpatient services, uh, tele-emergency, tele-intensive care, telepharmacy, and telepsychiatry. Probably the most interesting one, or, or actually probably the most surprising one to me uh, when I first heard about these services was tele-emergency. Um, can you describe the kind of services that Dartmouth-Hitchcock provides under this offering? Sure. And teleemergency is different from teleneurology in that we do have, as I mentioned before, an emergency hub here in our space. We also have a partner to provide that service. It's Avera Health. It's located out in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and they are huge in the telemedicine space, particularly teleemergency and teleICU. So we provide 24-7 coverage. We have the video monitoring um, set up on our side and in the hospital, the local hospital, they actually have hardwired in an emergency room, cameras, monitors, microphones, all of those things so that people, we don't have to wheel a cart around. It's They're able to see the patient that's right in the bed. We want it to be easy and hands off because as you can imagine in an emergency situation, we don't want people to have to worry about messing around with equipment. They're just trying to get the patient taken care of. So the emergency service, we actually offer kind of a whole range of options within the tele-emergency service. It's all about collaborating with the bedside team. So it really is up to them what they feel they need. Sometimes it is um, just a nurse who is maybe not experienced or, or is seeing a patient in the emergency room who's different from any patient she or he has seen before and will look for some advice from a nurse colleague. So they, we call it pushing the button. There literally is a button on the wall that will connect them to our emergency hub. And our team here has collected all of the information of, oh, this is where your, uh, you know, site right finder is for helping you do IVs. You have it in the third cabinet in the second drawer. Here they have their formularies. So they have all the information about the medications that they have. So they can just give advice to a nurse about dosing recommendations, how to administer drugs or procedure support, any of those things. That's wow. one. Wow. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, research. It's not just like, oh, I'm just randomly calling somebody. I mean, you, you, what you're describing is a, a lot of kind of pre-work involved in setting this service up. Yes, it's a real partnership. And we spent typically the timeline for uh, launching a teleemergency service at a site is, uh, you know, 70 to 90 days. And it's a very involved process. Our teams go on site to work with the local hospital teams to make sure we understand how they work and, you know, uh, are really collaborating with them to understand all of their systems and their staff needs. 
Uh, another thing that they do, we might also, um, we, well, we offer to do trend note documentation for them. So they're very busy. And, uh, you know, the key is wanting the local bedside staff to be able to focus on the patient in the bed and take care of the patient and not being worried about, oh, I have to document this and that, or I'm going to forget it. So our team can document the care that's being given and then send it over to the hospital without being involved in it. We also then can provide full team support, including an emergent, a board-certified emergency medicine physician who, again, may be helping out a, an associate provider without a physician in a regional emergency room or a hospitalist, not an emergency medicine physician on the other side, to just get that extra level of specialty-trained expertise in emergency medicine. So this is this is a scenario that you might see in again say a critical access hospital or a small rural hospital someplace where the the providers who are staffing the emergency room are not board certified emergency medicine physicians. Right. Okay. And so And we've had the whole gamut. I mean the the number one reason for our teleemergency calls are cardiac related. Trauma is the second. Um, but there's been a whole there's been a gamut. So we've had a baby delivered with support from teleemergency. Wow. Um yeah, and all kinds of things. And you know, peds is another area where we're very helpful because in some places they don't see very many kids or they don't see kids very often in the emergency room. So just having kind of uh, that extra set of eyes, as we refer to it, can provide a level of comfort and support for the local team to feel like they someone's right there to answer questions or even just to say, yeah, that's right. We agree with your treatment plan. Okay. So again, with the, the goal of, of a program like this would be, of course, to provide kind of immediate consult, but also, are you also looking to kind of reduce transfers and other what are the other benefits kind of uh, to having um, this kind of like the, the emergency services yeah it, I mean that's one of the if you do research about tele emergency services that's just out there that's one of the factors one of the benefits that is stated is the ability to keep patients it's been hard for us to quantify that because it's kind of hard to know whether the the patients are calling us about are so are in such rough shape that they were going to come here anyway. So we really don't have a good baseline. We're still trying to figure out how to, to quantify that. Okay. Um, but, but that is one of the things, one of the opportunities. I mean, we definitely have um, an understanding that the availability of teleemergency to these local emergency rooms has saved lives. We know that patients have ended up transferred out of that local hospital and to a place where they need to go much more quickly than they would have been otherwise. That's another one of the service options of the teleemergency is that our team will coordinate transfer, whether it's to here, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, or somewhere else. So if we can't take that patient here, our teleemergency team is looking for the next best bed for that patient, whether it's Boston or you know, somewhere else. So all of those things save time. And that's really the goal is to uh, save time and to preserve the best patient outcome. So let's talk about uh, the other services. Uh, you've got tele-intensive care. So I'm, uh, again, trying to picture, how does that work? Yeah, um, ICU is another one uh, relatively similar to emergency in that the ICU beds are wired, they're hardwired, and we have tele-ICU physicians here in our connected care center in an ICU hub. So they have a bank of monitors, they're monitoring patients at all different hospitals, and the service, again, it's really a collaboration with the bedside team and related to what they are comfortable 
asking for or what they feel like they need. So they might call. They also have a button. They might push a button and end up calling to speak to the ICU intensivist to ask some specific questions. The other piece of it, though, is uh, predicted analytics. So all of the data that is being collected from the patients in those beds through their monitors, all of their labs, everything that's in their medical record is being fed into our tele-ICU hub. So while at the local hospital, they may or may not have an intensivist, uh, usually overnight, that's pretty hard to do. They may only have hospitalists in-house overnight, and they have other stuff to do. They can't stay at the bedside. The tele-ICU team is watching these analytics, which will tell them a patient is starting to deteriorate. And so early intervention can be launched to make sure that we're preserving, again, the best possible outcome for that patient. Okay. What you use the phrase wired, uh, wired bed, I think, mm-hmm. or, or network bed. Is that uh, something specifically put in place for uh, to in order to interact with your program, or is that something that uh, most hospitals would have in their ICU? And and when you say wired bed, what does that mean? It, it's specific to tele-ICU, and it means that the all of the patient data that's coming from the monitors that are attached to the patient and their medical record information are all being collected through a software system called VisiQ. It's a Philips product. And so that is really creating the reporting and the alerts that the tele-ICU physicians monitor to be able to keep an eye on a bunch of patients in multiple locations at one time. Oh, neat. Now, you've used the phrase hospitalist and intensivist a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, some folks listening to this may not know the difference. So could you explain what's a hospitalist and what's an intensivist and why is it that you would, wouldn't, you would be less likely to see an intensivist in a smaller organization? Sure. So in, in t- I'll start with the second one. Intensivist is a critical care doctor. So that's someone who has special training in critical care medicine. And those are typically anesthesiologists and pulmonologists who then have done a separate fellowship training in critical care medicine. Uh, surgeons are also maybe critical care physicians um, and occasionally um, neurosurgeons and neurologists have critical care training. In most places, in our um, tele-ICU world, it's right now staffed by anesthesiologists and pulmonologists. So um, if I can interrupt just for a second. So, so yeah. we're talking about um, somebody who has done uh, a probably an internal medicine uh, residency, gone on to do a pulmonology fellowship, and then done yet again a critical care uh, fellowship or yes. further training. So this, uh, this yes. is a fairly high level, fairly advanced level of care that we're talking about here. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, they're expensive and they're rare. They're, I mean, one of the big things that's driving the growth of telemedicine is just the scarcity of physicians in general. So neurologists are very, very scarce. Critical care intensivists are very, very scarce. So um, even if you could afford to have enough of them in your hospital, they, you might not be able to find them or be able to recruit them to come and work there. And okay. some hospitals don't really have an ICU. Um, you know, they have, you know, in most of the critical access hospitals or even smaller regional hospitals, what they might call ICU would not be an ICU patient here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. They'd be in a step-down unit. But the, but we can still leverage tele-ICU services to help them take care of those patients so they can stay there, especially because we don't want those patients to come to our ICU. We want to preserve those beds for pa- patients who really need them. 
So uh, that's the critical care intensivist hospital medicine is I don't know as much about them um, because I lived in the anesthesiology department right. for 20 years. I know a lot about critical care, um, but but it is a separate training discipline. So there is a, a fellowship in hospital medicine, a residency or fellowship in hospital medicine that those physicians would have completed in order to do that work. And typically they're like they're utility physicians. So they are really taking care of patients in the all kinds of inpatient locations in the hospital. My understanding, particularly at the community hospital level, is um, people who are filling those the hospitalist role tend to be internal medicine and don't have to necessarily have gone beyond a internal medicine uh, residency. I th- I'm gonna I'm gonna suspect that most of the people we have here have uh, separate hospital medicine training. Okay. Um, but that may be a Dartmouth Hitchcock. I, I suspect maybe because you are a you're a medical center, I think. But yeah. my experience with hospitalists is, I think the the minimum requirement is internal medicine. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm sure that that's correct. And I think the idea is that you know they they really can go everywhere. So mm-hmm. as opposed to we we can't have you know every different surgeon rounding on a couple of patients here and there, and we want them to be doing surgery. The the hospitalist can take care of those patients and also the uh, you know pneumonia admitted patient. So this when when we talked about this service before, you kind of you described this as this is a, this is a complement, not a substitute for mm-hmm. uh, services at the local hospital. Yes. Yeah, and that's really where we want to talk about it as a collaboration. So uh, you know, we're not trying to displace anyone. It's it real it, again, like much like teleemergency, it's that second set of eyes that can provide that extra layer of. Um, monitoring and vigilance, because the key is early intervention. That's the whole key to making sure that we can provide the best possible outcome for patients. The data on tele-ICU is that it has shown to reduce ICU length of stay. It has also shown to reduce post-ICU length of stay in the hospital, because when the patients leave the ICU, they're just more stabilized, and they don't need to spend as much time in the hospital in general. They're also more likely to be just discharged straight to home versus to a rehab facility. So, you know, we're saving costs to the system. We're just the, the, and it is all because of that early intervention based on the availability of analytic predictive data. You've talked about this analytics and predictive data a bit. What do you mean when you say that? So the physician who is monitoring the patient information can see lab values or, um, you know, um, heart rate values. They just from watching the patient data, they can say, oh, this this patient looks like he's heading in the wrong direction. We should change the meds. We should do a procedure. They can see early on that something needs to to be done to prevent that patient from further deterioration. Okay. Um, And... So you, when a hospital puts uh, someone in one of these network beds, obviously they're intending for you to be aware of that, you know, individual. Who is sitting in the uh, in the um, uh, connected care center uh, monitoring that? Is there are there is is it is it always a a critical care physician or is there a, a nurse kind of doing the continuous monitoring and then alerting a physician when something seems to be going wrong or how how does that work? Yeah, the tele-ICU team is a nurse and physician team. Uh, because of our partnership with Avera, we, they're providing the nursing support right now. We only have physicians here in our space. Um, and it's a collaborative service. Uh, I mean, we are in partnership with Avera. So uh, there are Avera critical care physicians also 
providing some of that service. Um, ultimately, if we had our own individual hub that we were staffing ourselves 24-7 with our own physicians, we would have our own nurses here as well. Um, and then again, the revenue stream off of this kind of um, uh, uh, service, is, is it roughly the same as, as what we've described previously with the uh, neurology where it's kind of a subscription service or is it a consult service? How does that, how does that work from, from your perspective? Yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a mixed bag. So we only have services right now um, at Cheshire, and we are going to go live with SVMC next month. Um, we charge kind of a flat fee that's kind of based on the size of their ICU units, but it's done other ways, other places. So sometimes it's a per consult fee, uh, not per consult. I take that back. It's a per admit. So the patient is admitted to the ICU. There may never actually be a conversation for that particular patient, but we're still monitoring that patient from the tele-ICU side. Sure. Um, so, so there are a variety of reimbursement options. For tele-ICU, for the local hospital, um, there's, there's a lot of data to indicate the financial return on investment for tele-ICU. So there's, as I mentioned, there's data about reducing the length of stay, which means if you have a, already have a full ICU, you're going to create some new capacity to get some new volume. If you don't have a full ICU, it will allow you to keep some patients, have an increased census and get some new revenue that way. There are a lot of... Um, quality improvements that happen. So uh, improvement in sepsis bundle compliance, improvement in um, DVT prophylaxis, improvement in ventilator acquired pneumonia, all of those things have cost savings attached to them. So there is an opportunity with tele-ICU for new revenue, but also for significant cost savings because of interventions that can be avoided length of stay reductions. So let's uh, switch gears and talk telepharmacy real quick. And uh, and you've got this listed as an inpatient service. So so some folks who are listening to this because this is a this is going out also to support the class may not realize you know that there's you know, are there interactions with pharmacists have typically been kind of on the retail outpatient side. Right. What's the role that um, the pharmacist plays on the inpatient side, and how does your service support that? So our telepharmacist performs the exact same work that the inpatient pharmacist does in a hospital, which is to review every medication order to make sure that there are no contraindications or any issues with any errors in the order, uh, any mistakes, uh, inadvertent errors, and uh, to make sure that there aren't going to be any kind of complications or contraindications or adverse reactions to other medicines the patient is currently being administered. Okay. What's the benefit of this service uh, to, you know, why would an organization want to contract with you to get this service? Yeah, it's similar to some of the other um, 24-7 services where your volume really isn't enough to justify the cost of having a person in-house. So in a small hospital where there may only be, you know, 10 patients in overnight and the pharmacist would only have two orders or something to review overnight, it's pretty hard to justify the cost of an in-house 24-7 pharmacist. Yeah, a pharmacist is an expensive uh, resource for- They are, and also scarce. (laughs) Yeah, right. And And to get one to go up to the North Country or- 
to, to just fill two uh, two prescriptions over the course of an of a of a of a shift would be would be right. an expensive thing to do. Yeah, uh, telepsychiatry. Uh, I know the the we've when, on our private previous conversation. I know the military uses a fair amount of of telepsychiatry, uh, but primarily my understanding is primarily outpatient. Your service is focused on inpatient. So, what is the service that telepsychiatry provides on a, from an inpatient perspective? This is an acute service, so it's essentially based in emergency rooms where uh, patients come into emergency room and have some kind of acute psychiatric need. And the, the goal of the service really is to help to get those patients managed. Most small hospitals don't have um, local psychiatrist services. They may have, um, you know, a regional community mental health agency who comes in to the hospital during the day and may help to do some care management and things, but they don't have a psychiatrist who can diagnose or um, make recommendations about involuntary commitment or reverse an involuntary commitment. So often what happens is patients end up kind of languishing in an emergency rooms and not being treated while they wait to get a transfer to the New Hampshire State Hospital or Vermont State Hospital. And this way, with an early intervention of a psychiatrist, the patient can be treated and often we can uh, move that patient more quickly out of the emergency room. So they get to where they need to, either it's they don't need to go to the state hospital treat the patient, or even if they do, and there's not going to be a bed there for a couple of days, at least those patients can be managed and cared for in the interim. So it's better for the patients. It's a lot better for the emergency room staff who otherwise are, you don't feel well equipped to take care of these patients. Yeah, that's a, and that's a, 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 a significant problem in the state of New Hampshire in particular. I, I don't know how it is in other states. I'm sure it's similar in some states uh, where we have very long waits with uh, people with psychiatric uh, uh, diagnoses who get it, who come in through the emergency room are, are often waiting in the emergency room for extended periods of time uh, to be transferred to an inpatient facility or to get that kind of definitive treatment. So this is an important service that, uh, that, that could, be, could be rendered this way. Um, Absolutely. And some of our uh, psychiatrists here did a study that I believe was based on our own emergency room and looked at the fact that, you know, at least a quarter of the patients don't need to go to the state hospital and being able to determine that and make other arrangements for them so that they're not stuck waiting around is really the key. So, you know, if, if you're waiting for the psychiatrist who comes in every Thursday what happens with the patient who presents on Sunday, Sunday night, you know, this, we, our service allows them then to get a call and to have a board certified psychiatrist make recommendations for that patient. Now, I noticed uh, uh, from your website that you don't have telepsych listed under ambulatory services, and I want to transition to ambulatory uh, next. So how come? It seems like there would be a, you know, psychiatry doesn't involve the level of laying of hands that other, right. you know, ER or, or ICU would. So it seems like a natural fit. What's, uh, uh, are, are you headed that way? Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts there? We're talking about it. We're trying really hard how to figure it out. We actually, there are some child psychiatry services going on via telemedicine. There's one psychiatrist who's been doing it for a, a couple of years. It's kind of 
um, he kind of set it up on his own. So it didn't happen through, through it didn't evolve under our department. Okay. Um, and that's something that actually over the last couple of years, uh, as our department has grown, we've really tried to get a handle on and to make sure that we are um, uh, the, the gate through which telemedicine services are delivered because we want to provide standardized processes, workflows. We want the, the patients and the the hospital customers on the other side to have the same experience regardless of which kind of service it is. So um, it, that one just kind of grew, evolved on its own with that physician. Um, we have another physician who's going to be doing some child psychiatry services um, within the Dartmouth-Hitchcock system down in Concord. But reimbursement is really the big challenge with that. And with psychiatry, it's an extra challenge because not only do we have to deal with whatever the telemedicine reimbursement restrictions might be, but uh, behavioral medicine services just are not reimbursed in general. So the more we add those, it's the more we're adding to a negative bottom line for the psychiatry department until we can figure out uh, enough arrangements where the people on the other side are willing to uh, create an arrangement where they may pay to make up the difference. Okay. So in our telespecialty services, the outpatient, typically the way we have it arranged is that our doctor does the professional billing. So with the psychiatrist doing professional billing for those services, they, they would just lose money. Right, right. Uh, um, so let's talk uh, about your ambulatory services. You've got a you've got a fairly robust list of specialty services, and I'll list them real quick: gastroenterology, hematology and oncology, nephrology, rheumatology, neurovascular, pediatrics, and we're going to talk separately about radiology in a, in a minute. Uh, how are these services uh, delivered? Are they are they consultative relationships with physicians, or do patients actually see a Dartmouth Hitchcock physician, or is it kind of both? How does that work? Yeah. And, and this is the list from our website. It's a little bit of an old list. And okay. we have uh, some of these things we're not doing any longer, but oh, we have a right. much longer list. I'm okay. happy to say of more things we are doing. Okay. So it, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. So uh, some of the visits like gastroenterology are visits to patients at home. We also have some surgical post-op patients, post-op visits by plastic surgery where the patient is at home and the visiting nurse is at on the patient side. So um, for the patients at home, the patient might be on a phone or a computer or a tablet, and the doctor is on a, here in the hospital on the laptop computer. It's we provide the patient with the information about how to log into the system so that they can have their visit. There's there's not for the gastroenterology. It's the doctor and the patient. That's it. Um, as I mentioned, for the plastic surgery, because they will, you know, the doctor or it's actually an associate provider who's doing that post-op telemedicine visit wants to see wounds and how those are looking. It's a little sure. easier for them to leverage the visiting nurse who's there seeing the patient also to help position. They use iPads for that. Yeah. Um, and so that's who's there on the patient side. We also have patients who are at another hospital or a clinic, and sometimes there's a telepresenter, sometimes there isn't. The extent and the skill set of that telepresenter varies depending on what kind of service it is. So we have a nephrology chronic kidney disease service that is relatively um, intensive. There's a nurse on the patient side, um, but for other services, there could be an MA who really all that person does is room the patient and is there to help you know position things or, you know, might uh, help report some physical things to the physician who's on the other side. 
Are you uh, doing, and then yeah. we also we do also have um, occasionally arrangements where there is a primary care doctor on one side with the patient, and then there's a specialist on the other side. So that tends to be the least frequent. It's the most resource intensive. In some occasions, both of those physicians can bill a service, but not always. So we haven't done a lot of that. Okay. And is the billing... So I'm, I'm imagining the... Um, uh, say the the home visits are are they part of a of a global bill typically? Yes. Okay. So home visits are not currently reimbursed, except in very limited situations. So Vermont um, just passed a law that, that requires a coverage of home visits. So Vermont Medicaid will pay for home visits. Um, the commercial insurers in Vermont must cover home visits. Medicare does not. So if we were over in, I mean, we do see some patients from Vermont. We see patients in Vermont. This is where pediatrics comes in. So we're um, working with Copley Hospital to start providing some services over there. And uh, if we those patients and subsequently we decided it would make sense for them to have home telemedicine visits and they were Vermont Medicaid patients, we could do it and they, because there'd be reimbursement. But otherwise, it's hard to differentiate by payer what kind of service we're going to offer to patients. So it, it does restrict us. Okay. I typically think of pediatrics as uh, a primary care service, but I imagine that's not really what you're providing. No, it's pediatric specialties. And I I think we may have talked about this, that uh, one of the things we're really excited about are the pediatric specialty services that we're providing to Cedarcrest Children's Rehabilitation Home. So we have... um, nephrology, neurology, urology, GI, uh, and pulmonary medicine services all being provided to those patients who previously would have to get transported up here to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And it's a long ride with one or two attendants to help those kids get here. So that's really a big win in our view to have those patients able to get the care where they are. And that seems to be a consistent theme is, is this telemedicine allows you to, um, you know, or allows the patients to stay where they are and get uh, specialty services. Yes. Um, so we talked, uh, we talked previously about uh, radiology and, and you were saying, you know, the teleradiology is actually managed out of the Department of Radiology. And uh, I, I wanted to kind of raise that as a transitional discussion and kind of going into strategy and, and thinking about uh, uh, the provision of, of telemedicine and, and organizations getting into the provision of telemedicine. Uh, teleradiology was, was actually a service, uh, as I told you in our prior conversation, that I actually I uh, worked with in the past. Um, I was working at the time. I was working at what would be the equivalent of a, a critical access sized hospital. We had uh, we had two radiologists, and they were um, working, uh, you know, working like crazy and burning out because they were kind of going back and forth, taking call every night. Um, so we wound up contracting with uh, a a teleradiology organization and I, at the time I was up I was working in uh, rural Louisiana and we actually wound up contracting with a practice out of Houston um, so Texas so we were crossing state lines um, it seems like and we had a number of choices so it seems like that's a, an example of a service that's fairly robust um, that has uh, or, or a service that has um, 
there's a lot of people competing in that space. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, teleradiology really, I think, it lends itself to, or radiology lends itself to provision through uh, telemedicine because you're focused on, you know, you're focused on reviewing images anyway. Um, right. So I'm imagining, you know, I mean, if Dartmouth is trying to get into that field, and I, and I want to use this as kind of a, a jumping off point to think about telemedicine strategically is, you know, as you move into telemedicine, geography stops being a, um, uh, a, a barrier to the provision mm -hmm. of services. So, I mean, and you've mentioned you, you actually work with a, a, a couple of other firms that, that supplement your, your services that are not located in New Hampshire. They're not co-located with you. They're someplace else in the country. So I, I'm curious your thoughts on kind of strategy and marketing from that perspective of, you know, as we move into, as we, you know, as you move more online and provide more services, and as this becomes a more acceptable and commonplace way of delivering care, how do you think about, you know, how do you think about strategy? How do you think about competition? And how much do you guys worry about that at this point? Yeah. Uh, I'm the our region is actually relatively open from the perspective of competition and we for teleneurology for example and telepsychiatry with specialist on call we partner with them on both we negotiated a non-compete um okay with them so that was one thing that helps us in that regard so that means they can't come in and offer they can't then offer services independent of you in this area correct yeah. yes so that, that was beneficial. But I, I mean, our main concern is really our region right now. And so fortunately, there's not a lot of competition. We have an opportunity. One of the things that we look at for at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Telemedicine Services as potentially differentiating is that we have a whole suite of services. So where there are some, some um, vendors or even some other health systems who are providing services within their own system and may start to think about going outside, maybe they have telestroke, maybe they have pediatric trauma, they, they have one or two things, and we have a whole suite of services. And there really is some synergy among them. So as an example, we might have, um, if a hospital has teleemergency and teleneurology, a patient might come into the emergency room and with a seizure and the emergency teleemergency doctor or team can make some recommendations. They can also say, gee, you have teleneurology, maybe you want to have a teleneurology consult. And then they can find out uh, yeah, we can keep that patient. We know how to take care of that patient. So, so we view that as really a differentiating factor. Our goal is really to take care of patients in our region. That's our first priority. Okay. And I think it's, it, it, I have a nice little list of what our approach is to talk about how we want to work collaboratively with regional facilities. So our yeah. goals are to identify healthcare needs or gaps in the region where we can help. Where can we help to bridge that gap? We want to bring resources to patients and providers when and where they're needed. Um, we want to improve patient outcomes and we really want to allow more patients to stay close to home. So th that's the approach of our services. And again, really our priority is taking care of the patients in our region. When we're partnering with other hospitals who are, are technically our customers, we are, their patients are our patients. They typically end up coming here at some point in their patient care journey. So it's, we really view them as all of our customers and, and looking out for the patient, our shared patients. 
you know, in a previous conversation, you'd mentioned that, you know, Dartmouth-Hitchcock provides uh, connected care really at a loss. Um, so why does Dartmouth-Hitchcock do this um, if, if that's true, if, 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 you're, if it's not a profit center? Yeah. Um, why, 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 the, why the investment? It's, it's not our choice. Our goal is to get to be self-sustaining. Okay. So right. it's we're really, um, this Connected Care Center is technically in year three of, of having, you know, like a, a identified, um, specified cost centers for each one of the services. So, and they are expensive to varying degrees. So emergency and ICU are tend to be more expensive services, um, uh, neurology and both from a capital and an operating perspective. Uh, neurology and psychiatry tend to be less expensive services. Um, but as again, that whole portfolio of services, our goal is to um, grow adequately and to have enough scale so that we can be self-sustaining. Okay, so it's so this is uh, all. It's just you're early in the um, in the game then, and really, yeah. right? you're still kind of a startup phase. Um, so at some point, you think with sufficient scale, this will be a, a money maker in the long run. Yeah, I, we don't have any illusions that, or it's not our um, goal to make buckets of money. We would like to be self-sustaining, yeah. and and you know, I mean, it's we need to provide these services in a way that's affordable to the region as well. Yeah. So. Um, well, that's, I mean, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. I, and that leads me to my next question because, you know, uh, most folks know we're, we're in a process uh, in the healthcare industry. We're in a process of moving from, you know, the old fee-for-service model where, where a physician or a hospital got paid to provide a procedure, provide a visit, right, to uh, more of a value-based model where hospitals providers linking together to kind of uh, be con- will be compensated based on keeping populations healthy. It seems to me that, you know, some of the examples you used where you're keeping, you know, a lot of the focus of, of your program is keeping patients where they are. So keeping them in their local community and even your examples of like post-operative care in the home, that seems to fit very well with the idea of bundled payments, which is coming, and kind of other ways of providing care, providing definitive care at a lower cost. How do, how, what are the discussions you all have had about how telemedicine fits into that kind of value-based future? Yeah, uh, candidly, we haven't um, had very many detailed conversations about it yet, but it really is the population health aspect of telemedicine is really a big piece. And the the more we have an opportunity to track and quantify the avoided ED visits for patients who have, for example, outpatient telepsychiatry services or outpatient telespecialty services, whether it's at a local hospital or a home, that, that has an impact. There, there is a lot of opportunity for cost savings to accrue to the system. And I, I think our challenge is to figure out how best to quantify it and attribute it to the telemedicine. What would you say are the limits on growth for your, for, for your organization? What, what is it that makes it difficult to provide these uh, services. So you've mentioned, you know, some some issues around comp, uh, uh, billing, uh, around licensing. So what are the challenges on a on a kind of day to day basis? And are there any is there anything else that's kind of standing in the way of of expanding and getting to that scale you want to get to? 
Yeah, I mean, those are really the big hurdles, um, the Medicare reimbursement restrictions. In New Hampshire and Vermont, our regulations are actually pretty good, especially Vermont is great. And the licensure, I mean, New Hampshire is part of the Interstate Medical License Compact, but that's not really helping us just yet. So so that may be something that becomes easier in the future. Um, what does that I mean? mean? What, what is an interstate compact for? So there are something like 19 states who are participating, and New Hampshire is one of them. So the idea is if I have a medical license in New Hampshire and I want a medical license in New York State, and New York is also part of the compact, it's a lot, it's almost like a it's like a courtesy license. I don't have to go through the whole licensing process independently through the New York Board of Medicine. They they take my New Hampshire light medical license as um adequate documentation. Okay. So it makes it easier to pull. Most of the states that are participating in the compact are out West. So it's, uh, and we're not providing services out West, but if Vermont became a compact state, that would be very easy because a lot of our physicians are providing services to Vermont and Vermont is a very onerous medical licensor process. So that would be great if they were compact and it would essentially be um, just reciprocity in terms of medical licensure. Okay. How far away are the furthest facilities that you um, contract with to provide care? Do you provide care to anybody outside of kind of uh, Vermont and and, uh, New Hampshire? We're not outside Vermont, New Hampshire yet. We are talking to some facilities in Maine. Okay. So that's kind of the next um, logical extension. I mean, as I mentioned, kind of our focus has really been on our region and our patients um, and the hospitals with whom we interact to, to take care of shared patients first. But so Maine feels like the next logical extension. Sure. Um, and it's the next state over. Uh, right. So, yeah. Uh, and given the sh- physical geography of New Hampshire, it's probably not uh, probably not that far from uh, physically from where you are to get to Maine. Right. Yeah. Let me let me ask you to kind of imagine a future um, uh, where like, is there a point where you could imagine small hospitals, you know, critical access hospitals in rural areas being run mostly by nurses and PAs and basically, you know, uh, wheeling around carts with cameras on them that, uh, you know, and that's where the physician that those are the physicians. Yeah. So that's already happening with some services. And I think it's not because of telemedicine. It certainly is not our goal to try to replace physicians at all. But I think we what we can do is we can provide the physician access when sites are unable to obtain it. It's a, a I think it really, it depends a lot. It's going to be specialty by specialty. It will depend on the local patient population. Um, You know, we don't feel like there is a substitute for in-person physician care via telemedicine, but um, patients have have the the feeling that the data that's out there from patients is that they find care they receive by telemedicine to be at least equivalent to in-person care. And the outcomes indicate that the care is equivalent to in-person care, but that still doesn't mean that we don't need physicians locally with the patients. Sure. Okay. That's just a fun speculation. Uh, so mostly what you've described, Dartmouth Hitchcock is is primarily involved from a from a um, uh, from a telemedicine perspective in in what I would call a business to business B two B kind of segment of the telehealth market. So you're not you're not at this point 
offering services where patients could dial up on their iPhone um, in more of a uh, of a retail mode uh, or a business to consumer kind of mode, which which does exist um, in some you know some services are out there doing that where you can just kind of you know hit your app and be click into to you know uh, Skype or or uh, you know FaceTime with a with a, f- a physician directly uh, at will kind of um, do you it, instead it seems you make contracts with hospitals rehab facilities and so forth to provide these services through so through another um, facility do you guys have a thought on you know uh, going to that kind of next retail level, if you will, of, of having your primary care providers doing uh, telemedicine visits? Yeah, I think it's in our future. It's That is the area of growth is, you know, patients having home visits. There are a lot of different things to consider about it. There are, there are employers who are providing this. And so there's certainly an opportunity uh, with all of our own employees internally to have, we're self-insured. So we could be providing telemedicine appointments to our own employees as patients. Um, the direct-to-consumer is typically business that's out there now is typically that primary care stuff that you're that you're talking about. It's the patient avoiding a doctor's office visit or a visit to an urgent care or a walk-in clinic where I have a sore throat, is it strep or those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so I think we have an opportunity to improve our access in our in-person clinics by making those kinds of offering. I'm, I'm just not sure where we would start. I don't think we would start with kind of a out there for the world where, you know, any comers to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, York Hospital in Maine, for example, has a direct-to-consumer like product. It's for their own patients. Okay. So my sense is, and we're in a strategic planning process going forward in looking at where our opportunities are specifically in the telespecialty ambulatory space. And I just don't know where we might start with that. We might start with our own employees. We might start with our own patients. Um, so we're we're working on that. Okay, it's it's interesting, I mean, and I imagine that will become a very competitive uh, uh, environment very quickly. Uh-oh. Yeah, some private payers are paying for those services. I mean, right now it's mostly it's a lot of self-pay. So it's the, the person who's willing to pay forty-five bucks to have that yeah. online appointment. Um, but some payers are starting to cover it with some vendors. So I think that the more that moves forward, the again the reimbursement landscape drives what happens operationally quite a bit. I, I mean, my, my speculation is I think we'll see, you know, the value of that go up as we move away from that fee to, you know, fee for service model and more towards, mm-hmm. a, you know, how do we keep you out of the hospital kind of, uh, you know, where we're not worrying about, OK, how do we bill for this service? And instead, we're compensated for, you know, for some sort of global, you know, capitated rate that, you know, just. Absolutely. Made, yeah. I mean, I think. That to me, that seems to be the the main interference for a lot of these kinds of things going forward at this mm-hmm. point. You know, are really growing at this point. Um, so let me close up on a couple of you know kind of quick questions for you about kind of your thoughts on and and if if you are, you know, let's say you're at a cocktail party and you introduce yourself and 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 so and and you say, well, I work in connected care. What are the things that People most and and you and and you say well that means I you know I help manage telehealth and telemedicine. What are the things that most people misunderstand about telehealth? What do you find yourself correcting most often? 
Yeah, I think it's um, people really, if they don't know what it, either they know or they don't know. It's, okay. It really is two ends of the spectrum. So, and people who don't have any understanding of it at all are really impressed and surprised about, wow, you can, I, I guess the thing that people don't understand the most is how much actually can be accomplished by telemedicine, the full spectrum of medical care that can be provided. That's probably the thing that people um, are most surprised about. And if there's one thing you could tell people about telehealth, what would it be? It's not, uh, it's not hard to do. Patients like it. It's not really new anymore. And I think our goal is really to help people understand that it's not some um, shiny, cool technology thing. It's really just another way of delivering care to our patients. And we really want to try to integrate it into the entire range of how we provide care to our patients. That's great. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been really interesting. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community. And we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.